when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on all things British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing Boris Johnson's failed diplomatic efforts at the G7, and whether the government's grammar school's proposals will help ordinary people. I'm delighted to be joined by Ruhal Halaf, the FT's deputy editor, political correspondent Henry Manns, and political commentator Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. Let's kick off with Britain's role on the world stage. After Brexit, the nation has to reshape how it is viewed and what it does abroad, and the Foreign Secretary obviously plays a big part in this. Yet Boris Johnson has had a bit of a rough week after his first efforts to lead opinion at the G7. After talking of the idea of enforcing tougher sanctions on Russia in the press, he was rapidly slapped down when the German Foreign Minister said he did not want to further isolate Russia. So where does this leave the situation in Syria, Russia's relations with the world and the UK's standing? So Henry, Boris is in a rather odd position. Theresa May clearly made him Foreign Secretary to allow him to grow or shrink in his first front bench role and it certainly looks like he's shrunk this week because he's tried to lead opinion and failed and now looks a bit foolish. Perhaps the starting point should be that a week or two ago we were saying how Britain preparing for Brexit was cozying up to all these nasty regimes, such as the Philippines, uh, such as Saudi Arabia. And in the case of Russia, actually, the government has stuck to a very hardline position, probably the most hardline in the G7 of opposing Moscow. And so you can at least make the case that that's an ethical stance. It dates back all the way to the killing of Alexander Litvinenko in some ways. The question is then about execution, about how Boris carried it off. And this wasn't the first time he pushed for sanctions. He pushed for sanctions in the last weeks of the Obama administration or just before the US election in October and um, was not successful then. So the question is really why he went into it so bombastically saying we're going to get a united voice around and we're going to push for sanctions when it became clear that the Germans and the Italians were very much opposed to that. Because Rula, this is what people would say is a criticism of Boris, that he's a very good showman and does the talking, gets the sound right. But diplomacy is about really not any of those things. It's about building bridges and alliances. And he doesn't really seem to have done that in this instance. Now, my reading of what he's tried to do is to project an independent British policy. Now, on something like Syria and Russia, there cannot be an independent British foreign policy. Typically, what would happen is that the UK and the US would align their policies. And sometimes, quite often, in fact, especially in the case of Syria, the Foreign Office would present a policy that is backed by the US. If you think of how it often works at the UN, it's the Brits or the French who introduce a resolution and then the Americans come in, try to toughen it up. So My assumption earlier this week was that this was a policy that the U.S. wanted. And by the end of the week, what became apparent when Tillerson went to Moscow, and that was the main show, really, in the geopolitics of the week, it was Tillerson in Moscow, he appears not to have been in favor of tougher sanctions on Russia. So it wasn't just the Europeans who were not in favor. It was also the US. So that does leave me very confused about what the objective was in the first place. 
And of course, the US position has changed so much. If we look back to when Donald Trump came in, it was essentially more friendly to Russia, less friendly to China. That's flipped 180 degrees. And we're essentially back to where we were with the Obama administration's broad outlook on Russia's Syria situation. Actually, I have no idea where we are on US-Russia Syria policy. We started off with Trump wants to be friends with the Russians and doesn't see Assad remaining in power as an obstacle to that. Then we turned into he's killing beautiful babies and we have to act. And now we're While sort of somewhere. chocolate cake. Yes. And now we're somewhere in the middle where my impression is that the Trump administration has not yet settled on a policy. On the one hand, they don't want to escalate with Russia. So they're trying to play it both ways, essentially. And at some point, they are going to decide, you know, is U.S. policy for Assad to stay or to go? And if so, what implications does that bring? What would they have to do? So it's one, getting a policy, enunciating a policy, and two looking at how they implement a policy. And it certainly seems, Henry, that the UK's policy is regime change there, which is a bit further along the line from where the US was, based on what Boris has said and comments from the Foreign Office. But again, he's also changed his mind on this quite a lot, even over the past almost year he's been Foreign Secretary. Yes, the strangest time, I think, um, for me in Boris's short period as Foreign Secretary was when he gave evidence to a House of Lords committee as rather sort of low-key scenario. And he just seemed to think out loud, really, on lots of aspects of Middle Eastern policy. And in particular, he said, well, obviously, the FCO policy is that Assad should go within 18 months, but it hasn't worked in the past. So maybe we need to rethink it. And maybe there could be elections and maybe Assad could stand. And that seemed a bizarre concept, really, that A, that Assad would submit himself to that, but B, that, that Britain would think it, it was consistent or it was a good idea. So he's now taken a very hard line position. But the basic problem for Britain is that where does it stand, as Ruler says? It's not a bridge between the American position and the EU position. It's actually more extreme than both of those stances. It's not a go-between between between, uh, Washington and Moscow. I mean, Boris had a visit planned for a very badly timed visit, as it turned out, from Sunday to Monday, and had to cancel that. Did the Americans suggest to him that he cancelled? Well, what they're saying is that, in fact, it was Boris's ideas cancel and Boris decided in a conversation with Rex Tillerson that he was going to cancel it but the mood around that looks bad not only in the influence that he had with Tillerson but also in whether Theresa May was actually in favour of this visit going ahead and whether she's been prepared to back him up. In the old days what would have happened is he would have gone and he would have prepared the grounds in a way for the Tillerson visit. He'd be able after seeing Lavrov to go back to Tillerson and help him prepare his own visit which would be the more important visit. So it wasn't the craziest idea to try to go to Moscow. What was terrible is that you know I'm going and then I'm not going because I discussed this with Tillerson because that did suggest not only did we not know what the policy was in the UK, but it was one day being pulled by the Americans and the next day trying to look a lot more independent. And we know that Tim found the leader of the Liberal Democrats, his comment that Boris's the American poodle has gone down very badly in the Foreign Office and Boris Reid didn't like that. The question here, Henry, is there's been lots of reports I've sort of picked up from people about Boris flying around the world and not conducting the role of British Foreign Secretary in the manner you would normally expect a Foreign Secretary to do. If you look at his predecessors, Philip 
Hammond and William Hague, both much drier and more low-key politicians. Or William Hague obviously has something about him, but Philip Hammond was very dry. And I think there's been a lot of frustration in the Foreign Office that he doesn't stick to the script, as you might call, that he does it his own way. And behind the scenes, in the way diplomacy often happens, you don't hear about it, but here we're actually beginning to see this. But I can't really see Boris changing. He's too much of his own figure, his own personality, to try and suddenly go, well, actually, I'm going to be a more conventional foreign secretary because it might actually get things done. Yeah, I mean, his style is, I think, as Crispin Blunt, the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, said, we've got a celebrity foreign secretary. And that means that, A, he comes with the baggage of 20 years of newspaper columns. So everything he does is inconsistent. So a little while ago in 2015, as a newspaper columnist, he was in favour of teaming up with Putin and Assad to beat ISIS and to save Palmyra and those kind of things. And the other thing it means is that any small, whether it's a gaffe or whether it's just a sort of inconvenient occurrence, any small incident like that gets pulled up. So he has to cancel his visit to Moscow. That's front page news. And him being called a poodle is front page news in the Mail on Sunday, I think it was, in a way that Philip Hammond cancelling a visit to Moscow. I mean, no one's going to choke on their cornflakes on a Sunday morning over that. That doesn't necessarily mean he can't be an effective foreign secretary. I think the broader question is, for Britain, whoever's in that job, we have limited leverage on what is a two-power situation. I think that's the important point here, is that This whole government is occupied with Brexit. So there is one foreign policy, essentially, which is the relationship with the European Union. Anything beyond that, I think, is going to appear superfluous, a waste of time or not very well thought out because not enough attention is being put in it. And as Henry says, Boris is like a celebrity. So he has to sometimes act like a celebrity and sometimes be the conventional foreign secretary. At the same time, Britain has to be thinking this year and next year about what is its place in the world. This is how you formulate your foreign policy. And that is still all up in the air. Absolutely. And I was speaking to a former aide of David Cameron, who actually had one of the moments David Cameron became more pro-EU was actually to do with the Russia sanctions last time because Britain really pushed for that through the EU and it was that point where Cameron saw that using the EU to get all the European nations behind actually led to those sanctions being put in place which have had a very damaging effect on the Russian economy show David Cameron this is why Europe and the EU can be effective for magnifying Britain's place on the world stage and I guess that's what's got to be reset and how you can still try and have that role after Brexit. And if you look at the bigger picture. The special relationship with the US partly worked very well because of Britain's influence in Europe. Without Britain's influence in Europe, that special relationship, there are questions about it and questions about the role that Britain will play on the geopolitical front. And do you think, Lula, to to Henry, does this say the G7 is ineffective because defenders of Boris have been out kind of saying he was doing the right thing, he was trying to take a tough approach, it's actually the G7 that's failed here by being weak and giving in to Putin? I don't disagree with the attitude that he took, but it's a question of, you know, coordinating with your allies and your partners. It is very well known that Italy is very reluctant to impose further sanctions on Russia. The discussion in Europe, for instance, is when can we get rid of these sanctions? There's a lot of, even in Germany, there's a lot of business pressure on the government to move away from sanctions on Russia. So I don't disagree with the policy that Boris once, but it was not realistic to be pushing for that policy if you know that everyone else is resistance, because at the end of the day, you end up looking like a fool. 
And I think if there are two countries that probably are not going to trust Boris Johnson hugely, given his role in the Brexit campaign, it may well be senior members of the European Union who really feel that he didn't behave very well in that period. Maybe it's time to think of sanctions as really something that have been proposed and continue to be proposed, but are unlikely to come about. And you've got to look at other ways of containing Russia, if that's your policy. At least you need to have the US on your side if you're talking about more sanctions. And finally, Henry, do you think that Theresa May cares about any of this, that she's been on a walking holiday in Wales this week, which has gone the usual criticism for a politician, how dare she take a holiday at some point? But there has been a general sense that her foreign policy attitude, because remember, we haven't actually had a very strong foreign secretary in quite a long time in Britain. The prime ministers have often led the charge from Downing Street. And I think Theresa May, certainly in that sense, doesn't really seem to care that much about these kind of issues. I think the sense we got from Downing Street is that they were very wary of engagement, of getting sucked in to a conflict, and they didn't necessarily see an exit strategy. We don't feel that Theresa May has a great interest in foreign affairs. I mean, it's not really her brand of conservatism, really. I mean, these are people thinking about their communities, about the values they want to impose in Britain and British capitalism. She's already bit off probably more than she can chew for the next general election. So I don't expect to see her becoming a global player. And last thought, Ruler, we're in a bit of a stalemate over the whole general situation. What happens next? In Syria, most probably nothing. So far, at least, until today, I don't see anything that's happened, including the missile strike, that would fundamentally change either the balance of power on the ground or the balance of power within the negotiations. So, yes, there is a slightly tougher policy on Russia. There is a retreat from where we were going, which is we have to admit that Assad has won and he must stay. But... Nobody has yet articulated the alternative or what is going to make a difference in the peace negotiations. And now back to grammar schools. A core part of Theresa May's domestic policy agenda is to remove the block on new selective entry schools and start building them once more. Her Education Secretary Justin Greening has said they will try to target ordinary families, but there is some contention about what exactly that means and whether schools are actually going to help raise standards for the poorest in society. So Miranda Green, it's quite surprising in some ways that Mrs May is pushing ahead with this, given the fact that there's not that much call in her party for them to come back. There's most Conservative MPs are ambivalent. Labour is dead set against it. And there's question about whether it could even get through Parliament. Why is she so keen on going ahead with this? It's a wonderful question. Uh, essentially, Theresa May herself and key figures around her in the Cabinet, but also in her key advisory Praetorian Guard, were all educated themselves at grammar schools. And it's propelled them to the centre of British society and to the Cabinet room. And so they very vehemently believe in them genuinely as an engine of social mobility. There is a huge problem with that, because although that was very true for the post-war generations, that it opened up professional opportunities and careers for a large chunk of children from modest backgrounds, my own mother is one of those, it is no longer true. Grammar schools no longer help the poorest. A lot of children at grammar schools are there from private prep schools. There are tests for entry on academic criteria for which there's a whole industry that is booming around private tutoring at home to get through those tests. And so it's a very controversial policy because it doesn't do what Theresa May thinks it does, which is to open up opportunity for those at the bottom of the heap. 
There are some new government figures that Justine Greening, the Education Secretary, the somewhat reluctant Education Secretary when it comes to this policy, has published this morning showing, for example, that 53% of the families who send their children to grammar schools are from those with above average earnings. If you think that that compares to only 32% in comprehensive education, you'll see that there's a big mismatch there. And grammar schools also only accept a very small proportion of the poorest kids on free school meals. What they're trying to do this week is to say that they're changing the focus from the poorest to families in the middle. We've heard about Theresa May focusing on the jams, exactly, these famous jams. So actually, interestingly, the Department for Education has tried to quantify who these jams actually are. And the new definition is families with parents in work, but in poverty, those who may try to keep several jobs going. So they're not families on benefits, so they don't necessarily qualify for free school meals, which has always been the measure of the poorest in school. I suppose, Henry, this comes back to the point on whether you think grammar schools do help social mobility or not. And as Miranda said, a lot of people around the cabinet table think they do based on personal experience. But there's a fair amount of evidence that suggests that might actually not be the case. And, you know, some people have said that the free schools policy and the academisation under Michael Gove and the last government had been very successful at adding choice and liberalising the education system and going back to grammar schools has reopened this wound and actually given Labour a semi-decent stick to hit the government with. Yeah, one of the surprises of the last week has been not this this grammar schools drive, which we've known is in the government's in-tray, as it were, but Labour coming out with its own policies and actually a popular one in saying we would put VAT on private school fees in order to fund free school meals for all primary children. Now, actually, the 7% of kids who go to primary school, their parents probably feel a bit aggrieved by the prospect of paying VAT on top of very expensive fees. But actually, much of the rest of the population thinks these charitable institutions have been having a free ride. I think Henry makes a very good point here. Angela Rayner, the shadow school's secretary has actually had quite a good couple of weeks because she's managed to come out with this suggestion on VAT on private school fees. Today she's been quite combative, pointing out rightly that the government's trying to slightly cook the books to justify the grammar school's expansion. And it is an opportunity for Labour because the background, of course, to this is a serious funding crunch in most state schools, which every family up and down the land who sends their kids to state schools will begin to be noticing with appeals for money. You know, parents are being asked to contribute to the financial costs of running ordinary state schools. And against that background, trying to justify expanding grammar schools becomes even more difficult because you're changing the political focus of the DfE in that direction and you're also giving them extra money and people will ask why is this not being spent on the mainstream. So great opportunity for Labour if they can keep this ball rolling. So the question, Henry, is that, as Miranda said about Justine Greening, who actually went to a comprehensive school herself, going back to the personal anecdote thing, and she always looks quite reluctant when she's pulling across this policy. It's very much the Prime Minister's agenda here. And you do have to wonder, at some point in the future, that she may be replaced by someone more enthusiastic about grammar schools, which there are still plenty in the Conservative Party, but not necessarily the people you would obviously think of to sit around the Cabinet table. Yeah, whether it's Theresa May's policy or whether it's Nick Timothy's policy, her co-chief of staff who ran the Free Schools Network before going back into government and I think was quoted at the time in sort of late 2015 saying, I think we should have diversity in the system, I think we should have grammar schools, we shouldn't be blocking new grammar schools. Choice, I think, is what he was kind of focusing Choice. on. Choice, it sounds perfectly logical when you put it in those terms and they are persuasive advocates. 
Justin Green does not approach it with a great amount of enthusiasm. We understand that she wasn't actually particularly enthusiastic about her previous job until she did it for a while, the Department of International Development. So whether she will get used to this policy, we don't know. But I think it is a very uncomfortable position to be put on a primetime radio interview like she was this morning and be, be asked, who in the educational world in, amongst respected experts backs your policy and not have an answer? And in fact, when she was asked this on BBC this morning, what she did was said, can I just go back to your previous question? Which, I mean, is a sign of the real lack of an answer on that point. I think that's absolutely right. And she does look awkward, Seb, very much so. Rightly awkward, because it is a bit of an unjustifiable policy. She's having a good go this morning with this consultation and saying that the data's not good enough. So this is going to be a focus on these ordinary working families who currently don't get the benefit either of the welfare system or of free school meals, but who are being, in her argument, being currently ignored. I think... It would be a shame if she wasn't long in that post because of the grammar school's problem, because actually after a few years with Michael Gove in charge of education, where almost everyone who worked in the education world became alienated with what the government was doing, rightly or wrongly, there has been a bit of a sigh of relief with Greening in charge. She's done some quite interesting low-level, under-the-radar changes, for example, to the testing regime, which have gone down very well with parents' groups and with teachers' groups. And you could have looked for, under Greening, a slightly steadier period for schools as they undergo a funding crunch. But when she's having to sell the grammar schools policy that becomes tricky and just come to this funding crunch which has been something again jeremy corbyn has had some success attacking the prime minister with at prime minister's questions recently by pointing out the Tories had a manifesto commitment about schools funding and whether that has or has not been broken what's going on there so they very carefully phrased the manifesto commitment so that it wouldn't bind them too closely, to be honest. And the truth of it is that what they've tried to do is iron out anomalies in school funding which needed to be tackled. Like but anomalies in national insurance exactly. contributions. Exactly, and anomalies in business rates, the other great example of why you shouldn't try and tidy things up during a period of austerity because if there isn't a lot of money to go round, you're just redistributing the pain of cuts. You're not creating any winners so all schools are complaining and actually interestingly the grammar schools association which as you would imagine is quite a powerful lobby group with a lot of friends on the tory backbenches they're very angry about the funding cuts because grammar schools will be big losers under these changes and this will get complicated for Theresa may henry because the gang of conservative mps who are anti-Brexit are also roughly the same as the anti-grammar schools and that will just about erode the government's majority combined with the fact the SNP, Labour and the Liberal Democrats are all united against this policy. So when this does come in front of MPs, the government might struggle to get it through but even if it gets it through the Commons, the House of Lords are going to be very unhappy to clear why they're trying to lay the groundwork here with this targeting ordinary families. I think the political prospects of this look pretty grim. Unlike Brexit, there's no sort of referendum to tell... Uh, That's what we need, a referendum on grammar schools. I mean, it was a UKIP policy, though, interestingly. So there's clearly a market there. Well, clearly, but UKIP, as we now know, have zero Commons representation, so they're not there <laughs> I mean, to... UKIP have been incredibly effective at getting their policies adopted by the Conservative Party. Brexit, 2% of GDP spending on defence, grammar schools. Foreign aid possibly coming down the tracks <laughs> as well. Um, they've been so successful that they're the turkeys that voted for Christmas, as Nigel Farage put it. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment. Thanks for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. 
In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.